Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I have to say it's probably the most incredible trip I've ever taken. When you sleep in the tents, you're sleeping by a doe line. So you're sleeping by the sunlight. It's huge. By the way, this cave is could fit a 40-floor skyscraper inside of it. It's massive in some parts of it. It has the largest stalactites in the world. And there's just like huge just like columns of stalactites, stalagmites there. And because you have to repel in, they've not found any evidence that humans in the prehistoric days were were there. So it's really like you're going to a place that man has not been before. And that's like, whoa, you know, <laughs> it's incredible. This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Becky Gillespie. She is a full-time digital nomad, the host of the School of Travels podcast, and the author of the book, Shimokitazawa, A Tokyo Beginner's Guide to the World's Most Walkable Neighborhood. Originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, she lived in Tokyo, Japan for 12 years and then became a full-time itinerant nomad in 2017. She has traveled to 69 countries and had epic travel adventures, including trekking Everest Base Camp, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, and hiking Hang Son Dong, the world's largest cave located in Vietnam. Becky, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matt. I'm so excited to be on your podcast with you. I am super excited as well, and I wanted to do this episode back-to-back with the last Maverick Show episode where you interviewed me on your podcast, The School of Travels, and tonight we're going to flip the tables, and I'm going to be interviewing you, and I'm super excited to continue this conversation. Yeah, it was so nice to flash back to our conversation back in December. I can't believe it's been that long since the Nomad Cruise 10 where we met. Yeah, and in the last interview, we had wine together, and we do not have wine today because we are in very different time zones. I am currently in Asheville, North Carolina, and where are you today? 
I'm in Tokyo, Japan. Again, I've been here since January. I have permanent residency in Japan. So it has been an unexpected bonus to have that under my belt and be able to stay here with no issues as long as I need to. That is awesome. All right. I want to go way back to the beginning and ask you about growing up in Cincinnati. But to start this off with, I have a couple Cincinnati-specific questions to lead this off. Are you ready? Yes, sure. Okay. Gold Star Chili or Skyline Chili? I don't even know why this is a question. Skyline. Skyline every time. I've only been to Gold Star like twice in my life. Okay, you're definitely from Cincinnati. Okay, next question. Grater's ice cream. Best ice cream in the world or by far the best ice cream in the world? By far the best ice cream in the world. Every time I go home, I have to have it. You will never have chips in your ice cream bigger than Grater's. Okay, you passed the test. You are definitely from Cincinnati. And by the way, I only know these things because my parents moved to Cincinnati after I had moved out and they lived there for about four years. So I would go home and visit them during the holidays and they've subsequently moved. So I have no further remaining ties in Cincinnati, but a lot of great memories and a lot of wonderful people that live there for sure. But I want to ask you about your experience growing up in Cincinnati and what eventually led you on the trajectory to decide to move to Tokyo, Japan at age 22? Yeah, sure. So I actually love Cincinnati. I love going back there and visiting my family and having these great local foods like you've mentioned. And I I think that Cincinnati especially that area, there's a lot of people that they work really hard. They're really down to earth people. And then they also have big dreams. And some people will act on those dreams. And a lot of people actually move to New York City or Chicago from Cincinnati, trying to get in touch with like people from more places in the world. When I was growing up, I didn't actually know a lot of people. I knew one girl from the UK and I only met her a few times. I mean, everybody was from where I was from or Kentucky or a neighboring state. And so, yeah, we we usually go to Chicago or New York, but I watched a lot of movies as a kid and I read a lot of books. And for some reason, when I would read these books and see movies that were set in other countries, I actually wanted to go to those countries. I didn't just say, oh, that that's nice. I love this movie. I also love Cincinnati. So I was like, I'm making a list. I'm going to figure out how I can actually go to these places first on vacation, check them out, and maybe I want to move there. I was that kid who was 14 on her own in one room of the house watching foreign films while my other family members were not so into it and were watching other things in another room. So yeah, I had some moments where I thought, why am I so different from my family, at least in terms of being fascinated by other cultures. I remember really wanting to learn French as a kid. And my parents were like, we don't know anyone who can give you access to that. Because, you know, the internet wasn't around when I was a young kid. I'm 38, by the way, full disclosure, everyone. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so when I was 21, this was a pivotal thing for me. I went to Miami University of Ohio, which is about a 45 minute drive from where I'm from. I actually started working in a movie theater the last year of high school. And I loved my coworkers and that movie theater so much that I wanted to keep working there all through college. So actually, every weekend in college, I would drive home and I would stay with my parents on the weekends. I totally missed the huge party scene of college, which there was a huge one at Miami. There was a big 
sorority and fraternity life there. But I was working 30 hours a week at a movie theater while double majoring. And I also knew even then that the way to my freedom was having financial freedom. My mom paid for half of my college, but I paid for the other half. For some reason, I don't know how I knew this, but I thought if I have my own savings and I don't have to ask my parents for money, I can tell them I'm moving to another country in a couple of years to try it out and they can't say anything about it. So that was the real difference for me was I think I worked all through college, but I loved my job so much. It was my social scene. We had 130 staff members. We had 18 movie theaters in our theater. So we, you know, there were things to do there. And um, yeah, those movies, I saw Lost in Translation during that time. And I thought, yeah, this movie, I saw it a year before I graduated. So I always joke that that movie is about two characters suffering from aching loneliness. But Tokyo looks pretty cool. So I happened to have this English teaching company come to my university for the first time when I was graduating at a career fair. They said, come to a year of adventure in Japan. And I applied and turns out it was very easy to get the job. But I thought, I'll go for a year and then I'll come back to Cincinnati. But I never came back. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. So had you done any prior travel? Did you go to any of those places that you were reading about or watching movies about or thinking about prior to moving to Tokyo? Actually, it's a really good question. The thing that gave me the confidence to, to move even further beyond to Japan was a year before I graduated. Miami University has a really strong study abroad program. They mostly focused, because I was a finance major, the business school was quite famous. It had a lot of resources. They had this campus in Luxembourg that people would go to for a semester. But I found a program called like International Business Summer Abroad, something like that. And it went to five different base cities in Europe over five weeks, I think it was. And we actually started in London and we studied from Monday to Wednesday. And then on Wednesday, there were 120 of us in the program in four different classes. On Wednesday at noon, they'd say, class is over, meet us in the next base city in the next country on Sunday night. You're free to do whatever you want until then. So I had one girl that I actually met in elementary school join this program just to come with me because she wanted, you know, she didn't want to go by herself. And we did a bunch of pre-study the spring semester so that we were ready to go in May to London. And then we were, you know, we had to plan our own things. There were no rules. So the first thing we did was we went to Paris that first weekend and checked into our first hostel ever and climbed through the window of the hostel because the key was missing. And like, <laughs> like you know, Sounds see these right. strangers. Yeah. It was one of those like top three hostels of Europe. And it was, you know, you, you jump through the window, put your bags down and there's some guy making out with another girl on the top bunk. And he's like, hey, I'm a firefighter from Canada. And you're like, travel is awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. So where else did you go on that trip? So the base cities were London, Barcelona, Munich, Rome, and Brussels. And then at the end, one of our four professors, every year, he would organize a group that sailed in the Greek Isles for another week. So we had like 15 sailboats going together with like six students on each boat. And that was like an extra 900 bucks or something. But you're like, well, I'm here. How would I skip this? And so it was amazing. It really gives you a very great introduction to the world of travel. And you have that cushion of like, you're going to see your students and your teachers again in like four days. So it was amazing. 
That is amazing. Yeah, I can remember studying abroad in undergrad and my roommate and I took the winter break and just took the entire month and went Euro railing through Europe. And I can just remember how incredibly magical and inspiring that was and motivating me to just want to travel and see so much more of the world. But I'm really curious to hear how that European experience then inspired you to move to Tokyo because Japan is very different from Europe. And I would love to hear what it was at that age that was calling you to go to Tokyo. I was very curious about how I was going to react to Japan because, as I explained, I was going there from a movie I had seen uh, where the characters are there for like a weekend or something. And one thing I knew was that the company I had been hired by was going to meet me at the airport. They were going to guide me all the way to an apartment that they were providing me. One of my roommates was going to be waiting for me at the train station to walk me there. It was going to be very guided when I got in. And I'd read things like Japan in general is very safe for solo female travelers and, you know, just kept reading about how low the crime rate was. And I was like, well, I mean, it can't be more dangerous than where I am now in Cincinnati. So let's just give it a try. I had enough money to fly home. So, you know, that was the thing. It's like, just give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, have your plan be ready. Right. And how long was the initial commitment for that you were going to go and try it for? One year. That is awesome. Okay, so what was your initial impression of the city and how did the first year go for you? I became best friends with the person who met me at the train station to take us to our apartment. So that was really lucky, although she did have a health scare and she ended up leaving about three months later, but we stayed in touch. But that was a really great introduction to almost feel like a sister, like I had a sister now in Japan. She was actually from Australia, but she was showing me around and I kind of felt like Honestly, I was continuing college when I first got there because our company called Nova was such a big English teaching company around Japan. And you would teach in different schools. You could swap your shift with other teachers. And so I was just meeting all these people from Australia, the UK, New Zealand, Ireland. It just felt like, wow, I just got here from Cincinnati and now meeting all those uh, British lads I've seen in movies growing up. This is pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Tokyo is a really international city. I've been to Japan now three times. I've been to Tokyo twice, and it is just an extraordinary city. It's one of my favorite cities in the world for sure. But I would love to hear your take on it now, because after you spent a year there, you ended up staying for 12 years. So I would love to hear what is it that you love so much about Tokyo? Yeah. So to be honest, at first, I was you know not sure how it was going to go. And I didn't know. I had only studied two of the alphabets for about a month before I went over. And those are hiragana and katakana. They're easy to learn, but it's the Chinese-based kanji third alphabet that's the real challenge. So you know, I, I knew a little bit, I could read a little bit, but I was there thinking like, hmm, is how am I going to like this? But I just immediately felt at home and I felt so safe there. And I love taking the trains and the buses and not needing a car. I guess I was never like a huge driver when I was back, you know, driving to my job from college anyway. So I just thought this is pretty relaxing. 
and there's no tipping in Japan. And I found myself being able to save money quite easily because there were ways to find cheap food. There were ways to get part-time jobs on the side. And I realized like, wow, if I start saving up money, Tokyo can be my travel base. It doesn't always have to be about Japan. I can fly from this incredibly international city to Asia to start with. And I actually ended up going to Beijing three months after arriving in Tokyo as my first like Christmas vacation from my job. And, you know, the more I saw, the more I just kind of became addicted with travel in general. And so that is a big reason is like Tokyo became my international travel base. And it had health insurance. There's a single payer health insurance plan in Japan that you can have even if you're not working or you're between jobs. And there were just all these things. Like I felt that in a way, middle class life was easier in Japan. And then as you spent more time there and you went on to live there for 12 years and become a resident, what additional things did you end up noticing about the city and coming to appreciate about the city? Right. So some of the things I came to appreciate were, well, number one, which people think of even as a tourist, is the food. I realized that the way I had grown up in Cincinnati, I didn't know anything about food or the joy you can get from it. I, to be honest, went to a lot of fast food restaurants in Cincinnati growing up. My mom was a working mom. She didn't have a lot of time to cook amazing meals for us at home. And I didn't realize how many chemicals and things were in our food we were growing up with. But Japan really values the quality of their food so much that I just dove deeper and deeper into you know, these different vegetables I'd never seen, eating raw fish, like doing all these things that to a, a someone from Ohio at first is like, oh, no, no, no can do. But I realized that they really value the presentation of their food, these tiny details. It, it's such a big thing in Japan. And they take such great care with everything they do. And I realized that that's very important in Japan, but it's also it can take you very far in life. It can also be overwhelming. It's very well known that Japan has a very stressful working life. And I suffered from that too, especially when I joined the corporate life in Japan after teaching English. I did that for four years and then I did quit and I did shift into back into a teaching capacity, but I was teaching lawyers at that point. So there's things in Japan like the bathhouse culture that people go to and they they really relax there. There's ways that you can, you know, relieve your stress. Going to the countryside in Japan is amazing. I also realized that Japanese people really value their privacy because it's such a crowded city and uh, such a huge city in Tokyo. You know, people, even if they've known each other for years in Japan, they don't tell you sometimes like, oh, yeah, I'm actually engaged to be married and my wedding is coming soon. You might hear about something like that a week before it happens, especially a man would tell you, oh, I just had a child two weeks ago. And, and you could be a close friend of theirs and not even know that because there's certain things they don't go deep into their private lives. As someone from the outside, that can be frustrating sometimes because you feel that you don't know them on a personal level so deeply. But on the other side of that coin, you get to maintain your privacy and not feel bombarded by constant questions either. So it goes both ways. Yeah, the food scene in Tokyo is completely next level. I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary. And it's not just the Japanese food. It is the international food as well. So, for example, if you're in Tokyo and you want to have Neapolitan pizza, you can find 
real, authentic Neapolitan pizza restaurants that are going to be the best in the world outside of Naples. I mean, it is just truly an extraordinary culinary experience in that city. I completely agree. And that is something that will keep you here. The food alone will keep you here if you get deep enough into it. I mean, even the convenience store food is a delight. I've had so much fun this summer just going at night to check out what new flavor of ice cream they're selling at the 7-Eleven. And it's incredible. Yeah. And the other thing about Japan is that there are so many places that are amazing. So Tokyo is spectacular. It is just absolutely epic and magical. But I also spent about five weeks in Kyoto and that city was completely different than Tokyo, totally different vibe, you know, very different feeling, but also just blew me away. Absolutely incredible, but in totally different ways. What was your impression of Kyoto? Actually, I just got to have that same experience finally after 16 years of arriving for the first time in Japan. But it was sadly, it was in February this year. So it was just when we were hearing more about the coronavirus and I wasn't sure how much I could go out. And it wasn't like a normal experience because the tourists were, there were so few. But you're absolutely right. Kyoto is a very different vibe from Tokyo. I have to say I had a very quiet experience, but you can have that even with all the tourists that visit Kyoto. There's so many moments for reflection in Kyoto. It's spread out, but it is a much smaller city, but it feels like just a holy city with also the modern conveniences. They're really like halfway in between modern and ancient these days, it seems. It's really special. I want to do it again. It wasn't enough time to live in Kyoto and I definitely want to go back. I agree. I want to go back as well. One of the other places that I spent time was out on the islands, which was yet another completely different experience. And the first island I went to was Miyajima, and we went out there to stay at a traditional ryokan, right? Which is a traditional Japanese guest house that would have an onsen, which is a traditional shared Japanese bath, and really do that traditional full experience. And it was just really spectacular and what an incredible island. But I would love to hear your take. I know you've been there as well and your impression of uh, Miyajima. I'm so glad you got a chance to do that. I love Ryokans. I'd recommend them to anyone and especially a trip to the bathhouse. I understand it, but I also feel a little bit sad when I hear friends say that they'll never go to a bathhouse in Japan because it does require you to be naked in front of other people, which I know for Americans is a very daunting thought. I love the feeling you get in Japan of being cared for. When you stay at a place like that, you've never felt more cared for and calm in your life. And you can really get rejuvenated in these quiet spaces in Japan. Even the staff, they just speak so quietly and calmly to you. And they'll really just bring you anything you need. And it just like they take customer service to the highest level you've ever seen in the world in Japan. And I love it every time. So I'm really glad you got to have that experience. Yeah, super amazing. And then we went to another island, Naoshima, 
which is sometimes referred to as the Art Island, which was yet again completely different and absolutely incredible. I know some people stay overnight on Naoshima. We actually stayed overnight on the island and other people just do it as a day trip. But I would love for you to explain a little bit more about that island and what your experience was like. I actually stayed in Okayama, which is about an hour away by train, plus a 20-minute ferry. But it's a huge city. It's on the Shinkansen, the bullet train line. And that's a really cool other way to do it, is you can just stay in this larger city, see one of the three top gardens of Japan, which is in Okayama, and then come over to Naoshima on a day trip. And that's incredible, too. But the island is just all these different art exhibits. There's renovated houses where each of these old houses has a different style of art exhibit in it on one side of the island. And then these incredible art museums that half of them are like, I know one of them, the Chichu Art Museum is like mostly underground and it's playing with like light and the you know the the darkness and there's a room full of monets like underground in that art museum that I just almost had a religious experience walking into that room it's amazing and i think it's getting higher on the radar for people but it's just a very unique experience you can only have in japan yeah i've been telling everybody to put naoshima on their list as they go to japan just a really unique experience The other place that I went that was an incredibly powerful experience is spent a day in Hiroshima, which, of course, is one of the two Japanese cities where the United States dropped a nuclear bomb at the end of World War II. And it was just incredibly powerful to spend the day there at the Peace Park and the Peace Museum. And I just think every person should go there, who can go there and just understand the level of devastation and destruction that comes with dropping a nuclear bomb on a city so that it'll never happen again. Absolutely. You should go there before you go to Kyoto and Osaka, in my opinion, if, if you have the time, just because it teaches and reminds us of such a powerful lesson to never do that again, basically, uh, what we did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki to the people of those cities. And it's called the Peace Park, which is what you walk through first to the Peace Museum. And I mean, it was the first place I went as soon as I arrived in Hiroshima. Hiroshima has other things to do, and it's actually a beautiful city. And they've kept, I'm sure you saw the one building that they kept just the way it was left after the bomb. I think it's called Genbaku with the open, like the roof that's exposed. But I feel that there is this peace, but also this deep-seated sorrow in that you can feel it when you're there. It's impossible not to feel what like the decades of history behind it now, but it's essential for any world traveler. If you can go the first week of August, that's the anniversary every year of the bombing. But also Hiroshima has one of the most exciting baseball teams in Japan. And Japanese baseball is like something you have to do if you're there in the summer. You have to go to one game. So the Hiroshima carp, actually, the hat looks just like the Cincinnati Reds. So I feel a special connection. But they are some of the craziest, liveliest fans you will ever encounter. So it's wonderful to, to do the Peace Museum, but then see the counterpoint, see like the modern side of the Japanese people. You will never see them in a more natural state. 
I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Date than at a baseball stadium. It's, it's really fun. So. Yeah, Japanese baseball is super serious. And you know what else I did when I was in Japan? I went to a sumo wrestling match. Oh, great. That's another must do, but hard to get tickets. It doesn't have people think they can just show up and see a sumo match. No, it's only certain times of the year. So definitely check ahead on that. Yeah, exactly. So depending on what you want to see in Japan, if you want to see the cherry blossoms or you want to see the baseball season or the sumo season, a lot of that stuff is seasonal. So you can look up, see when it's happening and then schedule your trip around that. So, okay, Becky, now you were based in Tokyo for 12 years and then you became a full-time itinerant nomad. So I want to now talk to you about some of your travel experiences outside of Japan. And I want to start with asking you about your experience trekking the Mount Everest base camp. Yeah. So I had had a friend do it the year before and he kept a diary of his daily experiences on the trek. And I read it and was really inspired by that and thought, wow, like that sounds doable because I thought this was reserved for people that had like superhuman strength or something. And trekking Everest Base Camp is not climbing Mount Everest. I mean, it's very a very different thing. This is actually something that I believe anyone can do if you have trained a little bit, got your cardio up and pray that you're not being affected by altitude sickness because the altitude does get high at the end. But I did it for 12 days. It was nine days up. You fly from the capital of Kathmandu on a tiny plane, the scariest part of the whole thing, to this city, this little village, I should say, called Lukla. And you land and then you basically start trekking. And every night you stay in different huts along the way and you stop in a different hut for lunch. You you know, get to another hut for dinner, you stay there, you have breakfast there, and then you keep going on to the next part of the journey. And as I said, I actually went by myself. And there were two other people, I joined a tour group, there were two other people, and then we had our guide. And it was our guide's first trek after the big earthquake there in 2015. So it was an emotional time for him as well. He had been on the trek when it happened, but he was safe. The people he was with were safe. But we were seeing a lot of rebuilding going on on the trek. 
And yeah, we, we had no issues. All of us reached the base camp. And then we went down in three days. And the difficult thing with this trek is that depending on the weather, that little plane may not go for three days. You might get stuck in Lukla and just wait for, for good weather. And we actually were incredibly lucky and had no delays at all. But when you do this trek, you're going to need to leave time at the beginning and the end to make sure you can do it and get back to Kathmandu. There is a way to take a bus or trek back down to Kathmandu, but it's several more days. So it's incredible. It's something I want to do again one day. Now, before or after the trek, did you spend additional time in Nepal? So I love Nepal. At that time, I just saw Kathmandu for a few days before and after, but I actually loved it so much. I went back the next year and I did a little bit of the Annapurna circuit, which is a different mountain range. And I did only a five-day trek at that time because I was still working in an office, but I also saw some more national parks. I got to see some rhinos and went to some hot springs. Nepal is an amazing country. I think in in the future, it will see a lot more visitors, but it's one of the most beautiful countries in the world. So I love the Nepalese people and I can't wait to go back again. I went to Pokhara and there's so much to see there. That's awesome. Well, the other thing that you have done that I've got to ask you about, because I've never done it, although I came close to doing it, but I've never done it, is you have hiked the Hong Son Dong cave in Vietnam, which is the largest cave in the world. And the pictures of this thing are just absolutely bonkers. I almost did it because I was in Chiang Mai and I was going to go live for a month in Da Nang, Vietnam, which I did on the beach there at central Vietnam. And what I was going to do is I noticed that they opened up a direct flight from Chiang Mai to Dong Hoi, which is where the cave is. And so I was going to fly into Dong Hoi, do the cave, and then go to Da Nang for the month. So I literally had booked the flight. And then I found out that because of my visa situation, I was not able to enter Vietnam through the Dong Hoi airport. It was just a, it's a very small local airport, apparently. And I needed to enter through one of the main airports in Ho Chi Minh City, I think is where I ended up entering. And so I was not able to fly into Dong Hoi. So I had to fly into Ho Chi Minh City and go up to Da Nang. And then I was not able to do the hike on that particular trip. So I've still not done it, but I think about it. I dream about it. The pictures of this cave are just next level bonkers. And I'm really excited to hear your experience and how it was. Sure. I have to say it's probably the most incredible trip I've ever taken. Um, And I say that because it's the only place I've ever been where once you get outside of the base city where you leave from with your trek, it's the only time I've ever been in the world where I didn't see anyone else for seven or I think our trek at that time was five days on the actual trek. And the only people we saw was our group and the Vietnamese team with us. And it, it just felt like we were in another world. It was our world. And that this is how life was now. And yeah, like even on Everest Base Camp or a really remote place, you're going to see locals, you're going to see people out there, but you don't see people on this trip. You just see the people you're with and you get to sleep in a cave. We did it for four nights in two different caves as part of the trek. And it's just amazing. And my tour guide at the time, I remember him saying like, 
he, one thing he loves about caving is it's one of the only places left in the world where you truly get away from everything, even cell service. Because even at Everest Base Camp, I was like uploading things to Facebook. You know, I couldn't do that when I went to the cave until I came back because, yeah, caves don't have that kind of connectivity. So, yeah, I first want to ask you, like, how did you hear about this cave? I heard about it because I was in Chiang Mai and having conversations with other nomads and somebody brought it up and started talking about it and then showing pictures of it. And we were just like, where is that and how can we go see it? I mean, the pictures were just bonkers. And so that's how it got on my radar. And then I looked into it and figured out where it was and what it took to get there. And I just simply haven't gotten there yet. But I think it's also the ability to go see it is relatively new, right? Like 10 years ago, you couldn't even go see this thing, right? Yeah. So there was a farmer, a Vietnamese farmer, who found the entrance to the cave when during a storm. He was seeking shelter in 1990. But the entrance to the cave requires you to rappel down into it. So he didn't really know what he had fully discovered at that point. And he lost. He couldn't find the entrance to the cave again until 2008. And he found it. He shared it with his local people. And the word got out to the UK, actually, where there's a lot of caving expertise. They wanted a team to come in and excavate this cave and see what was really inside. That happened in 2009. And that was the year when the first National Geographic article came out about this cave. That's what I read. And we became kind of obsessed with this idea of one day visiting. And the first tourist got to go in in 2013. And it's only when you go into this cave, you can only go in with one tour operator to this day. And it's a joint venture between the UK and Vietnam. They take some Vietnamese guides and some UK caving experts together with you when you go. And they only take 10 people a week. So I think it's changed a little bit since I went. I think the the next tour will start before the first one's quite finished. But yeah, you just go with a maximum of 10 people. And we did it five days and four nights. The first night and the last night, you're in Phong Na National Park, which is where the base city where you go out from. But the other thing was that, and this may still be the case, I booked my ticket for this in August of 2015 for the time I would be going in February of 2016. So I had to get like, as soon as they opened booking because you can only go to this cave between February and August every year because the water will fill up the cave the other parts of the year. So you have to know that you're doing this and get in and plan. Now, some people will drop out and you can book in you know, later on, especially if you're one person, but it is $3,000 to do it for the week. So that's the other thing. And I'm sure that's one reason, well, first of all, that there's such limited availability, but second of all, that it costs a lot, that people haven't done it or like, ah, I don't need to do that. But it's such an incredible experience. And you get really good Vietnamese food cooked by the team that come with you as well. So you're not also like trekking through with like eating snacks from your backpack. It's like you get really good meals, you know, three times a day. And you're going with really interesting people that have joined this trek with you. I mean, you can imagine who else would want to come on on a trip like this. And that's incredible as well. 
first of all, I miss Vietnamese food so much. I dream of it often. And second of all, we're going to post the name of the cave in the show notes. So you can just go there and then just put the name into a Google image search so you can see pictures of this place. I mean, it is just incredible. I will tell you as well. So people, they thought when I said I slept in a cave that I was in a dark, narrow space in pitch blackness. There's actually two what they call dough lines in this cave. And dough lines are where the roof has collapsed. So what really intrigued me about the National Geographic article that I read was that there's a jungle in the cave. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like dinosaur prehistoric time. This is like the lost world, you know, when you see the photos. And I wanted to go to that jungle. (laughs) So like when you sleep in the tents, you're sleeping by a dough line. So you're sleeping by the sunlight. It's huge. By the way, this cave is could fit a 40 floor skyscraper inside of it. It's massive in some parts of it. It has the largest stalactites in the world. And there's just like huge just like columns of stalactites, stalagmites there. And people are also worried about what wildlife they might find in the cave. Actually, there's new species they found, but they're sightless fish. So there's nothing dangerous in this cave that you're going to encounter. But last year, they invited a team of three British cave divers who helped rescue the boys in the cave in Thailand in 2018. They invited them to check out because they had never done cave diving before in the cave. They discovered a new tunnel last year that is connecting to a neighboring cave and they haven't had a chance to fully check it out. But if it actually is connected fully to the neighboring cave, it's going to be like, okay, so Mount Everest is about 8,800 meters. It's like finding another thousand meters of Mount Everest and making it even bigger. It's incredible. So this, they have to go back in with mixed gases of oxygen and helium to be able to get that deep because it's, I think it's 540 meters deep or something where they have to, where they're diving in this tunnel. It's crazy. So, so much more to be explored here. And that's another drive of this is like, because you have to repel in, they've not found any evidence that humans in the prehistoric days were, were there. So it's really like you're going to a place that man has not been before. And that's like, whoa, you know, (laughs) it's incredible. That's amazing. I'm so excited that you have done that. Now, the other thing that you have also done, which I have not done, is you have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. And I was in Tanzania. I did an East Africa trip back in 2018. So I was based in Nairobi, Kenya for the month. And from there, I went to Uganda And I went to Tanzania, but briefly, I just went to Dar es Salaam and then I went out to the island of Zanzibar, but I definitely did not hike Kilimanjaro. And I would love to hear about your experience in East Africa and what it was like to climb Kilimanjaro. Sure. So I went to Kenya and Tanzania and Zanzibar on an intrepid travel tour for about 10 days in 2009. That was my first experience. So I didn't get to stay for very long, but I did get my first experience with Tanzania. And then in 2017, I finally got to go back with like only the purpose of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And that was partly because, again, I was still working in an office, but I had just done Everest Base Camp in 2015. And so I was trying to build on top of that and say, okay, let's do something slightly higher and something that still doesn't require like an ice pick and ropes and things like that. So Mount Kilimanjaro is all trekking. You can do it just if you keep hiking forward. And again, 
get the right gear in terms of like you're going to need enough water and especially warm clothing. It gets very cold even in summer on the top of the mountain. For example, our water hose or like that we had like camel packs and that those froze on the last night. The last night is the hardest thing I've ever done trekking which is, you know, you're up all day, you sleep in the afternoon, and then at 10 p.m., it's pitch black already. They're like, all right, get on your all your clothes because we're summiting tonight by sunrise. And so you hike for seven hours straight up zigzagging, you know, already there's very little oxygen and you're, you know, have to keep going forward or you don't and you turn around and come back down. But once you get to the top, it's another like, kilometer of like a cross to get to the actual summit. So that's another thing you have to get. It's very thin air up there. You're, you have to keep just pushing forward, but it's incredible. And it, it, that flat top of Mount Kilimanjaro is such a unique feature to it. And it's a really spiritual experience. So awesome. All right. So between these three experiences that we have just discussed, how would you rate the strenuousness or the intensity level, or the fitness level required to do these three things between climbing Kilimanjaro, trekking Everest Base Camp, or doing the Hang Sun Dong cave experience? So Kilimanjaro would be the hardest, partly because it's the highest and it's that night, that summit night. You don't have to do anything like that for Everest Base Camp. And then Everest Base Camp would be number two. Hong Song Dong is actually quite easy in terms of fitness. You just have to be very careful with like stepping. And there's no sections of the cave where it's very narrow and you're going to have claustrophobia. There's nothing like that. It's more just you trek for three or four hours a day on that trek. And then you have nice meals and you get to like go onto a boat and row down the lake in the cave at, at one point. It's actually really lovely. That's so amazing. I also want to ask your advice, Becky. You have been now to 69 countries and you've done a lot of solo travel. And I would love to ask your tips, particularly for female solo travelers. Any tips that you have? Use common sense. When I'm traveling in certain parts of the world, I would not go out at night by myself. If I did, I wouldn't bring much money with me and I would not be like having my headphones on, being unaware. So that's like the number one rule. But I think just, you know, don't be afraid to talk to people and engage, especially in groups where it feels safe. And I, I tend to overshare, but I think by oversharing, something about what I overshare connects with people and then they feel at ease and I think don't be afraid to leave your hometown either and give it a try. You can always come back, not do it again, or pull back and try something different. I think getting over your fears with this is really important to see the rewards on the other side. That's really good advice. All right, Becky, I want to ask you about the School of Travels podcast. Tell us a little bit about the show and what people can expect when they tune in. Sure. So I liked the name, the School of Travels, because I thought there's so much you can learn from your travels. And that's pretty much where we start with every interview. I ask people where kind of what you've asked me, like, how did you get inspired to start traveling in the first place? Where did that lead you to on your travel journey? Where are you now and how do you continue to travel? During this recent issue in the world with the global pandemic, I've been asking people what they've done, how they've been handling it, and what other people can do to get through something like this in terms of multiple streams of income or focusing on productivity. 
things like that. And if anyone has not heard the previous Maverick Show episode, number 91, that is me being interviewed by you on the School of Travels podcast. So I would definitely encourage everybody to check that one out as well. And now, Becky, I want to ask you about your new book, Shimo Kitazawa, A Tokyo Beginner's Guide to the World's Most Walkable Neighborhood. Tell us how the book came about and what people can expect from the book. Woo-woo. Great pronunciation, Matt. <laughs> this is actually the secret for and the reason for why I stayed in Tokyo so long. This neighborhood called Shimo Kitazawa, I was sent to as my very first job teaching English in 2004. And the longer I showed up for work and walked around that neighborhood, the more I felt this special vibe of community spirit. And I just was like in love with this one neighborhood. And I was so happy whenever I was walking around the streets. And eventually I moved there in 2012. And like, I'd be like, I want to wake up every day and, and just walk really narrow streets, go to all these shops. And I realized a lot of the shops were run by very artistic people with like their own vision of what they wanted their shop to be. There was a lot of music and live music clubs there. And they had festivals every month. Like I'd wake up you know, certain times of the year to like people carrying a shrine down the street and then drinking in the street like a couple blocks down and, you know, the whole neighborhood coming out for things like this and people coming in from other parts of the city to enjoy these festivals. And I just thought there couldn't be a better place to live than this. And I was just obsessed for a long time with this neighborhood. So about seven years ago, I wanted to start writing it. But then life got the way travel got in the way, wasn't very focused on it. But now I've been here since January and I've been able to make a lot more progress and finally just decided, let's finish this. I'd love for people to discover this neighborhood before the Olympics and just see what a place with community spirit like this has and hope that they can take some of those ideas or some of that vibe back to their own places where they live and try to get people that live next door to them or live down the street, you know, to connect better, make events, start there, start at your local cafe, see what you can start to build in your own neighborhoods. So yeah, it's a really special place. And I'm glad it's on Amazon now. And I'm really glad that people can hope to start discovering this. Yeah, we are going to link up to the book in the show notes, folks. So you can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com, go to the show notes for this episode, and we will have the direct link to get Becky's book there. And Becky, one of the things that I love that she did about this is you dedicated this entire book to one neighborhood. And this is like a, what is it, a 200 and something page book? Right. There's photos. Yeah, we've got 58 shops that we mentioned. Um, I was writing a much longer book, which is why it took me so long as well. I had a friend say, is this for beginners? And I'm like, yep. She's like, they can't go all these places in, <laughs> in like a first trip to Tokyo. So finally, we narrowed it down. And yeah, it's extensive. It's like a guide to the place. That's awesome. So I should tell you that on my first trip to Japan, I was planning to go and stay for a month in Tokyo. And I asked a friend of mine, I said, where should I stay in Tokyo? She'd spent a lot of time there. She also lived there for, you know, years. And she said, honestly, you should spend way more than a month in Tokyo. And what you should really do is spend at least a month in each of the different neighborhoods 
in Tokyo because Tokyo is so massive and so epic that each of these neighborhoods is like its own universe and ecosystem and so worthy of extended time there. And so I absolutely love that you went this micro and this in-depth and this much detail just on Shimoki Tezawa. This place totally deserves it. And like you said, so many other places do too. And I just would see Shimoki Tezawa mentioned in a very, like just a very brief paragraph in The Lonely Planet. And I was like, there's a whole world there that nobody knows about. For sure. And we are going to link up to that book in the show notes, folks. So just go to one place at themaverickshow.com. There you will find the link to Becky's book and everything else we discussed in this episode. And at this point, Becky, are you ready to move into the lightning round? I'm ready. The lightning round. What is one book? that you have read that has significantly influenced you over the years that you would most recommend to people? One book I love is called Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life by Marshall B. Rosenberg. It's kind of a training guide for how to communicate with people and really listen to their needs and express your needs in an effective way. If you can connect with people effectively, you can accomplish so many things. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you would recommend people check out? I have recently paid for a year subscription to the Calm app, which I think I very much needed these last few months. So I love the sleep stories there. It helps me relax before bedtime. If you could have dinner with one person who is currently alive today that you've never met, who would you choose and why? I would honestly choose Elon Musk. And that's because I feel like he's involved. His mind is moving in so many directions and he's influencing so many different industries right now. I would especially be fascinated to know, like, what is he thinking of the future of the planet? I like that he's very concerned about, you know, the safety of the environment and trying to improve the way we're handling things on Earth. And actually, I know he's trying to <laughs> leave the planet as well. But I mean, not a lot of people are have the drive right now to push us forward and keep pushing. And I think it would be fascinating to hear what he has to say about things like that. Of all the places that you have traveled in the world, what are your top three favorite destinations that you would most recommend other people check out? Well, I've already mentioned the cave outside of Dong Hoi, Vietnam in Phong Nha National Park. That would be my number one. Also, I loved Bhutan, it's a place, it's such a peaceful and beautiful place, recommend to people. And also, haven't mentioned it yet, but Buenos Aires, Argentina. I've been back four times now. It feels like a city with great food and people that are waiting to just, they have the time to go out all night with you every night if you want. <laughs> and that's not a lot. I don't find a lot of places where people make that kind of time for you. And it's great. That's true. I have been to Buenos Aires a number of times. I've spent probably about a total of four months there and a lot of absolutely incredible memories from that city. But I wanted to ask you if you could expand a little bit about Bhutan and just share with people where that is and what your experience there was like. Sure. So I had to join a tour and you will have to do that because the country mandates that 
tourists pay a daily fee of a certain amount to experience the country. And I also was given a group visa on arrival when I came in, and that was through booking the tour. So if you do that, I went through Intrepid Travel. They only offer tours, though, like three or four times a year because there's a monsoon season. Bhutan is a little mountain kingdom between India and China, and it does have a king essentially, but he has a constitution has been created. And I think a lot of us heard about the gross national happiness that the country had set up as like their platform that they wanted to promote to everyone. And I think what I really like about it is they've really kept their culture very strong. And you go in and you see people wearing a certain type of dress. And just, again, I love mountains. So there's a lot of mountains there. And I love the food, actually. I discovered the food here in Tokyo. And it's a lot of chilies and melted cheese, red rice, and it gets quite spicy. And I really like the food there. So to get in, you need to go from, I think, there's two different airlines or there were that flew into Bhutan. So you're going to have to go through Delhi, India, or there was a flight going from Bangkok. But that is one thing is you're going to have to make sure you get one of those airlines that fly into Timpu, the capital city. And the final question, Becky, what are your top three bucket list destinations, places that you've never been that are the highest on your list you'd most like to see? Definitely Socotra which is an island off the coast of Yemen. We actually passed by it on the Nomad Cruise last year, but it is going through a whole lot of trouble right now. And I don't think I'll be able to get there anytime soon. But it's got really amazing flora and fauna and its own language. It sounds like quite an interesting and unique culture there. Number two would be Antarctica. I question whether I really should go because of the environmental impact, but it just looks so beautiful. And number three would be probably, of all places, I still want to go to Egypt. I thought I would be seeing Egypt for the first time on the Nomad Cruise, but I just love the history there and all the archaeological sites. It would be great to go there. Awesome picks. And feel free to hit me up when you go to Egypt. I have been there three times and I've spent about a full year in total in Egypt. So feel free to uh, hit me up for recommendations when you're ready to plan that trip. And at this point, Becky, I want you to let people know how they can get a copy of the book, how they can listen to your podcast, and how they can follow you on Instagram, connect with you, and learn more about what you're up to. All right. So to get the book... We're going to have a link, I'm sure, on Matt's website. I don't know if you know how to spell Shimokita, but if you just go to Amazon and put Shimokita Becky, you will find the book because it is a very micro niche area, like Matt said, and there's not much that pops up once you put those two words in. So Shimokita Becky, please follow me at Tokyo Becky on Instagram or at the School of Travels, where I post all the latest interviews. And you can also go to theschooloftravels.com. Awesome. And the website will let them know how they can listen to the podcast right there as well. Becky, this has been amazing. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Matt. It's always great to connect with you. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. 
Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.